Hiya, my name is Anna Quigley and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast by Citywide Drugs Crisis Campaign, Untold Stories. Citywide is a network of community organisations across the country, really, that are responding to the impact of drugs in our communities for the last 25 years now. This is a really important time for us in looking at the drugs issue. First of all, because we're finally recognising that the way we approach the drugs issue in Ireland is not working. And we have the Citizens' Assembly set up now by the government to look at how we should change the way we're responding. And obviously we've got the 99 members of the Assembly who are working away, doing really good work in there. But for us, it's really, really important that we're all part of this discussion, that we're all part of this conversation, because this issue, the drugs issue, it affects us all. So on this podcast you're going to hear from people. They're all people who are active in their communities as a result of their own direct experience around drugs. And that could be that they use drugs themselves, it could be a family member used drugs, or it could be just because they've seen the impact overall that drugs have in their community. And they're all people who want to bring about change as a result of their own experience. So we think these are really important stories. We'd like to really thank the people who are telling us these stories. And the stories that you hear on this podcast, they will be anonymous And that's because the current policy that we have, unfortunately, shame, blame, stigma and criminalisation are all part of that policy. So you'll understand that this can be difficult for people to be identified. So I'm an older woman. I have four kids. I used to work. And now that I've taken early retirement, in addition to that, I've always lived with other people's addictions. I've been a daughter of parents who used alcohol too much. Um, I have other family members who have suffered very badly from substance misuse, who died because of it. And then I married a man who had also problems with alcohol. Then, unfortunately, I had four children, two of whom have and had problems with substance abuse as well. So I've got this long lived experience of intergenerational substance use. It has impacted me in many, many ways. But the main result of it now at the moment is that I feel this huge need to campaign especially now with the Citizens' Assembly and this huge discussion that has opened up now in Ireland. And I am so delighted at at last that we are able to talk honestly and openly because so much of my life I feel that I have hidden a huge part of my life and I have had to keep it under wraps because people don't understand because it um, traumatises, traumatised myself, it traumatises others, and because of the negative views of um, people who use substances that there is within our, our society. I mean, I remember way, way back as a child when I would say things to other adults about my mother and I'd be told, don't talk about your mother like that. And I was silenced. And I just had to make my own way and make it all work for myself. Um, That didn't help me. That meant then that I repeated a pattern over and over and over again. But Claire, 
You only asked me to tell you a little bit about myself and here I have Ramajig on. Now I could listen to you talk about yourself all day. That kind of culture of silence and shame that you mentioned there. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I personally think that's really central to why we don't have these conversations. Why are people silenced and why do you think people don't feel like they can come out and share the experiences they're having? For me, I felt I was silenced because all these people, I loved them deeply. They were all good people. If they caused hurt, it was hurt that was caused because of their dependence on something that would make them feel better or something that in after a while, actually, that they actually needed just to function, just to function, just to get out of the bed, just to get up, just to do the ordinary things that the rest of us would take for granted. So in saying that somebody has a problem, when you say that to other people, certainly in the past, it was judged they were automatically a bad person. But they weren't bad people and they aren't bad people. When people who don't have experience come from a place of judgment and shame, and yet somebody like you or the thousands of family members out there who actually are the most hurt by the person they love's drug misuse, what do you think is it that has made you have the level of empathy and compassion and understanding that you have? How come you can see that when you're actually impacted by it and other people aren't? I haven't a clue. My father used to always say when talking about my mother and, you know, if we complained and said she said this, she did that. And he would say, you have to understand your mother is ill. So he had that. Well, I suppose as well, too. He also was ill in his own way. So that was the start of that, I suppose. I think you just sense, you know that the person, when they're not driven by the need for something or where they're not, you see it as kind of a confusion around their way of being, around, oh, this is complicated. I don't know, and I don't think I have a great level of compassion because I have sat in many rooms with family support groups where you will find the people are brokenhearted, absolutely brokenhearted and devastated by what has happened to their loved ones and how their relationships have changed. That what was once a loving relationship where you would have generosity and kindness on both sides then degenerates into one where the substance becomes the most important thing in that person's life and where that takes precedence and priority over everything else so that the person that loves them is left to the side. And yet, even within that, there are glimpses of the old person. And... It's tough. It's it's really, really tough and it's really, really hard. I know very many times I took an awful lot of it personally and I was very damaged by it. But it's it's very, very difficult for family members and loved ones to stand back and say, look, this isn't personal. But at the same time, the relationship changes and it changes hugely. Can you talk a little bit more about what happens within the relationship? with someone you love so much and would do anything for. Yeah, you've got this relationship with somebody who is using and everything is spiralling down and down and down. And it's so it's it's so easy to get up in get caught up in that downward spiral 
and you've got your people around you, you've got your friends, your family who love you deeply, but they see, they see how thin you're getting, how worried you are, how you're not sleeping well at night, how you jump when your phone rings and they're so worried about you and they're saying back off, leave them be, let them go. The one using drugs, let them go. But it's so hard to let the person you love so deeply, the one who is in pain, who is so vulnerable, who needs help, how can you let them go? The ones concerned for you and the professionals say, they can get help, the services are there, can't they get treatment? But you know, you make those kind of decisions to cut your loved one who uses drugs loose. These are life and death decisions. You don't know what's going to happen to them. And there's a lot of harm and damage and death that can and does happen because there are not enough services. Treatment is hard to get. Waiting lists are long. Detox beds are too few. Residential places, months, years wait. So very few people make recovery and maintain it. So you're battling. You're battling your own self-doubt. You're battling the addiction. You're battling the people who love you. You're battling the services. And you're battling society. And there you are caught and torn by all those at the same time. You're, look, this person's doing something illegal. They're using substances that are illegal. They're doing something illegal. If they're going to be caught with this, if they're caught up in this, if they're caught carrying stuff or dealing in stuff or doing something to get their stuff, they're criminal. They are criminal in the eyes of the law. But as they're also, they're getting this stuff from people who are criminals and make no mistake about it. The people who are dealing is the people at the top of these criminal gangs are out for one thing only, and that is profit. They do not care who they kill. They do not care who suffers. They do not care who falls by the wayside as they obtain their profits. People, our loved ones, are getting stuff off the streets. They're ingesting things into their bodies that they think might be one thing, but in reality, this is a whole pile of other dangerous stuff. There's a lot of dangerous stuff out there. They don't know what they're getting. They don't know the strength of it. They don't know the purity of it. And it's such a worry. So their families and their friends, they're just up to 90. They're in a state of permanent anxiety about this. And when you're afraid... For the person you love, you've talked about that, mm. but also about what might come to the door. A yes. lot of families, that's what that's what families are living with. And I don't think people maybe understand that. No. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you're always afraid of who they're hanging around with. And you know that a lot of the people that they are hanging around with are going to manipulate them and going to use them. They don't care about them. You don't know what kind of deaths that they are that they are incurring. There's just so much that you don't know and you're nearly afraid more of what you don't know than of what you do know. Because when you've got this gap, you've got a great imagination and as to what could be happening or what might not be happening. Drug deaths are a huge problem and if a person in addiction dies, their death passes quite often passes on to their family. And I've known people who have taken out loans from the credit union mostly or somebody who remortgaged their house to pay back drug debts. 
And again, are we stupid doing this? Are we thick here paying off these debts? Because your man's only going to get more of them unless he gets treatment, unless he gets... Anyway, it's it's a whole... It's just a whole area. And, I mean, there's the violence as well that goes with that, the random, everyday violence that just gets so used to. And then, within a family, you've got more vulnerable members. You've got kids. You've got older people. You've got sick people. Because every family always has somebody who's ill, who's going through cancer treatment, who is not, you know, who's pregnant, who's just had a baby. There's always somebody. And they have to be protected. They have to be protected from all this. And that means that the few strong people of the family then have to take an added extra burden on trying to manage this. Is it any wonder, really, that many family members just say, I can't deal with this anymore? Because people who work in drug services, they say that they get burnt out after about 10 years. So imagine your family member, you're living with this, with no protections, very few supports, and you could be living with this for years and years and years and years. And do you feel like how our policy and also services that are available, or the lack of services that are available, trap family members in this cycle and trap family members with very little support. The amount of people who have tried to take their own life, who have been, who have presented and A&E departments and told, oh no, no, yeah, okay, so you tried to kill yourself? Ah, but there's nothing we can do to help because you, your basic problem is your substance use. I, so, you know, they'll be seen by a psychiatrist and then discharged. Discharged right out into the dark night with an appointment for an addiction services. A few weeks or months in the future. It's just like, it's, these people are going asking for help. And they're just being told, okay, so we can't actually, we can help you, but we're not going to bother because you're, not the right kind of person. You don't have the right kind of thing for us to treat. So they give an appointment for an addiction service and that might be a few days or weeks or months into the future. So many. We've lost so many people that way. Many people who just go on then and just take their own lives or drop deeper and deeper into substance use. And yeah, it's it's so hard. It's so tragic. And these this services are just so messed up, especially when it comes to dual diagnosis. And as we know, about 60% of substance users have an existing mental health condition. So that could mean that somebody is schizophrenic or they might have a bipolar disorder. They might have high anxiety levels and these may be the reasons why they started taking drugs in the first place. But once they start drugs oh well that's it then. You're outside. You're outside the psychiatric services. They will not do anything to help you. Personally I was lucky in that one person who was very close to me he sought treatment. He got it very quickly. This was in the 1990s. He actually got it the same day. He went to his doctor and he was admitted into a detox unit 
the very same day. He had to wait then for a couple of weeks to go to a private hospital that was funded by his employer. Now, this was for alcohol problems, a problem with using alcohol. And it was there that we met a therapist who he kept in touch with right up until very recently. And she helped tremendously. And it also shows that that loved one, he went through treatment once and he never relapsed. Just for me, that shows how when somebody looks for treatment and is provided and provided with it efficiently and quickly and treated as, you know, a real person with real needs, with, treated with dignity and respect, that makes a big, big difference to long-term recovery. I also had another loved one who 10 years earlier, this was in the 1980s, had sought treatment for drug addiction. And he had gotten it pretty quickly, pretty quickly within six weeks from Coolmine. And he, he stayed okay for most of his life. Now, he did pass away about 15 years after due to related issues, but he never actually relapsed. And that really shows power yeah. services when people people are given them when they need, need them. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, contrast that with now where um, I've been looking for services for my daughters and it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it's been so difficult. Um, there's community services available, but they can be difficult to access to and there are waiting lists. Um, Do you want to tell people, people listening, I think, assume that those kind of services are out there. And unless you've actually tried to access them yourself or tried to access them for a family member, people don't know just how difficult it is. Do you want to try to explain to people actually what it's like when you love somebody so much and you're trying to get them help having door after door after door closed on you? Oh, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's so demoralising. It's so frustrating. It's, you give up. You give up quite quickly. Because if you've got someone who is dependent on substances and they eventually admit, I can't do this anymore. I'm in such pain. I need help. And you know, you've only got this small period of time that you can help them. And you, you, you try, you bring them somewhere or you ring up somewhere and you're just fobbed off or you're told to wait. Um, and people can't wait because they are desperate. And if they're made wait, they just get deeper into drug use. Um, I, I, I believed that when I was told by professionals, the services are there. If they want them, they will access them. It's up to them. They have to, they have to want it. This is the big thing. They have to want it. Quite often then, I discovered actually when they did want it, the services weren't there. Um, community services can be accessed if you want opiate substitution treatment. Yeah, but Sometimes if you're dual diagnosis, that can be extraordinarily difficult. I had an experience with my daughter last year where she 
didn't want to go to one particular place, but because that was the place for her catchment area, that was the only place that they would, that would take her. She tried four other services. Now, I thought, oh, sure, she's not really trying. She's not trying properly. She's not, she's just not turning up. And then I started to go with her. And I could not believe it. There was one place I went to first and they promised that, yeah, we'll treat her. Yes, she's, you're from this area. We will treat her. So... The nurse, she rang the nurse, made an appointment, went to the appointment, said the nurse was really nice and that was great. I went and picked her up, brought her to the service a few days later for the follow-up appointment and she went in. And I couldn't believe it when she rang me and said, they won't treat me. And I said, what? Why won't they treat you? I'm not the right area. But they did, they told me they were going to treat you. And do you know, like, how hard it is after persuading her, yes, this is a good thing for you, this is the right thing, and then for her to be turned away again. So the next time, obviously, it took a while before she built up the confidence to go again. Um, we went to a different clinic, and again, this clinic said, yeah, of course, we'll, we'll treat her. And... Um, I went along with her and the two doctors that were there, I came in, she insisted I came into the surgery with her. They listened very carefully to her. They were very kind, very nice, but they leant forward and said, we're really sorry, but we can't treat you here. And she accepted it. I didn't accept it. I was just so angry and we stood our ground. Well, and, um, they got the manager and they agreed to treat her. That was February. This is August. She's still going to that place. Wow. She is still on that program. That's incredible. And if it hadn't been for me being there advocating and digging my heels in, and she wouldn't. She would be deep in her yeah. own addiction. And that's what, there's so many people out there that for, for so many reasons don't ha actually, and a lot of people in addiction because of what it does to relationships, maybe don't have a family member going to those appointments with, with them or advocating yeah. for them anymore. And, and also on the flip side of that, the way you said she accepted it, we're talking about trauma as well. And when people mm -hmm. have been treated so yeah. badly for, for so often, that is what happens, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. You come to believe that that's your place, that that's your place at the bottom of the pile, that that's your place not being looked after, that you don't deserve to be looked after and that you're living on the margins of society, that you, you don't need or deserve any help, any support. I was so surprised when I saw her just accepting it because she's pretty outspoken. And she's pretty bulgy. But the minute she walked in to this setting, she was subdued, she was quiet, she was compliant, she would. And that really is the point of conversations like these, you know, blame, shame, 
stigma it's that we hear those words a lot they can sound like buzzwords mm. but that's the consequence and that's what that does to a person I'm just so struck by your advocacy and the work you do you've had to witness so many people you love so much really struggle with addiction I'd have four loved ones that I have three of whom have died from drug use Three of those are, well, I think all four of them were neurodiverse. Three of them definitely more severely. They never completed school. Now, the other one, she did go on and she did a degree. But although she was hugely intelligent, she had problems in other ways in relating to the world and in relating to people. They weren't problems like, excuse me, she just had a different way of relating. And that for all four of them, it made it so much more difficult when they were younger because it's harder to make friends when you're a little bit different. And kids can be so cruel in excluding other kids because they're a little bit different. And then when you're in school, because you think um, in, a, in a, not the same way as everyone else, it's much, it makes that so much harder as well. And if you have ADHD and you can't, can't sit quietly in the classroom for the bloody five hours or so that they expect you to sit there quietly all day. I'm in my 60s. I've found a way of living that suits me. And I'm going to stick with that. I know what works for me now. But I know when I was younger, I felt a lot of the time, I spent an awful lot of time wondering why I was different, wondering why I didn't fit in, wondering why I always said the wrong thing, why I didn't understand properly what that person was saying, how everyone else understood, but I didn't. When you carry that burden and you feel that um, aloneness, is it any wonder that many turn towards drugs as a way of coping? And how I got through school was I drew constantly. So now I draw and I use writing as a way of processing all this shit that has happened to me. And it's for me, that's transformative. Art is transformative. You can take something that is really painful, that makes you suffer and you do something with it. Whether it's the act of painting or writing or performing, you take that thing and you put it outside of yourself. And as you're using it, it changes. And then you're also having a conversation with whoever, the audience or the reader or the viewer. And that, well, that really helps because then you're connecting with people. So on that point about art and how it can help you process pain and trauma, how important is it that everyone has access to it? Because unfortunately, as you both know, not everyone does in the same way. I think that it is hugely important that people have access to different art forms and different forms of culture. It's, it's a vital part. It's so important for us. And yeah, I have run groups of people. I volunteered in a hospital and I worked with a few groups there for that because these were people who were stuck within the system where you have all bodily autonomy taken off you. Art was a way for them to have some independence of expression, some activity where they were able to do something, to create something. It helps so much. I've worked with other groups too, worked with family support groups and most recently with people who use drugs. And in and it's just amazing what calmness this brings to people who are in really, really difficult situations and have some 
to see their situation differently. It's good for me. I do it because it works for me. Art always worked for me. It's whenever I had no access to it, like for instance, when I was working and I was rearing four kids and I had no time, but even just reading good literature, attending the odd life drawing group, that always suited me and helped me and helped me change my state of mind, even going to a good film. So what motivates me? What drives me? The thing is, like living with people, known people who have suffered from substance abuse for all of my life, that is one of my defining life experiences. And I have to use that. So this is how I'm using it. You very clearly have such a strong sense of social justice. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Where did that come from? I always had a strong sense of social justice. I think because my parents, they thought a lot and they talked a lot. We um, conversed about the news, about things that happened, that were happening in society. And that was just normal for us. And we always did that but also because my parents were working class. Both of them had left school when they were 12 and 13. One was apprenticed and my other did all, my mother did all kinds of different jobs until she got married. But they were determined that they, that we would get a better upbringing. Um, both of them remembered huge hardships and deprivation from their childhoods. And in fact, my mother very rarely talked about it very rarely talked about our childhood. So they bought a house to in a middle class area so that we could have a better life and we got good education. And that made a big difference. I remember particularly my secondary school. This was in the 1970s. We had quite a few teachers who were quietly feminist, even in this convent school. But at the same time, the nun she was pretty formidable, strong woman. You mentioned hope and I'd like us to end, you know, on a sense of hope. And, you know, what is your hope for the kind of change you're seeing at the moment and what do you think needs to happen? Well, first off, I think decriminalisation of the person who uses drugs. I mean, that's major. And I know like the guards say, oh, well, in effect, we don't actually really, you know, criminalise people. Well, whether or not they do. Just the knowledge of knowing that what you're doing is against the law immediately puts you outside society's norms and society's protections. And it has a huge psychological effect. And that is the number one thing. It is in the mind of the person who is using. I am outside. I am not worth protecting because we know that. We know what goes on. Also then for the people around them. I mean, it's horrendous to be gone. Oh, my God, I can't talk about this. This is illegal. It, it's against the law. What can I do? If we're allowing our kids access to unregulated substances that can do them harm, doesn't it make sense to regulate these and make sure that, well, it's only kids over 18 can have access to this and making sure it, that the kind of stuff that we're selling here is safe. We know it's safe. And knowing what is in it rather than it could be any kind of shit that's imported illegally, is sold through the black market. And well, you know, 
The other thing I would so like to see is more and better treatment services, compassionate, easily available, easily accessible treatment services. And also the way it is now, addiction services seem to be segregated. They're outside the mainstream. But, you know, for instance, methadone clinic. Oh, God, like I'm not saying all of them. Maybe there's a couple of nice ones. But any of the I've been to, the town of Lane, the grubby little buildings. And if you're accessing the services, like you're immediately, oh, God, I have to go in here. Like this is nearly as bad as going into so-and-so's flat to score. Maybe it's actually worse because it's they're always jam-packed and uh, you don't know who's there that, you know, you might have had a run in with before. And it's like, yeah, yous aren't worth bothering about. We'll give you this dirty little place that's overcrowded. And as well, too, like, how are we going to encourage people in to work in these services if they're not working in decent conditions? It makes such a difference to be going into a nice place where you're treated decently. It's like, OK, you have medical condition. We're going to help you. And access, easy access. Lots more of them and possibly through your GP. Like, why can't GPs prescribe methadone? What is the problem there? Like that stigma and shame as well, too. No, you can't go to your ordinary doctor. You have to go to a special place. Why don't chemists just, why don't they just, why doesn't every chemist prescribe or dispense methadone? And why does it have to be methadone? Anyone, any of my loved ones, they always said, oh, methadone didn't make them feel great. They felt sluggish and slow. What about suboxone? Why do we not prescribe more of that? And why don't we prescribe actual opiates? You know, like Switzerland does. Pure heroin is less dangerous than the stuff that you'd buy in the street, which can be caught with anything. And also, I'd love to see more supports for family so that particularly people can, that they can go and talk with somebody who's knowledgeable and expert in their field and who treats them with kindness and compassion and understanding. Very last question. What can people, what would you like to see people do after they listen to this podcast today? How? What can they do to... They can go and please go and educate yourselves about drug use. Um, read a few books. Read Philly McMahon's book about his brother John called The Choice. Read Broke, Unbroken Brain by Maya Salovich. Listen to Gabor Mate talking about trauma. Inform yourselves. Learn about it. Learn about why people do this. Why 10% of People who try drugs end up dependent on them. And then talk with other people. Make this a conversation. Talk with people you know. Let's, let's be open about it. Talk with your public representatives, your TDs, your councillors. Let them know how concerned you are about this whole issue, about how we need proper treatment services. We need effective non-religious, evidence-based treatment services. Talk about decriminalisation of the drug user, perhaps about regulation of drugs. 
particularly cannabis maybe. Let them know, let them know what can be done. That's what we need. We need to be bringing this out into the open. And most people, I know most people in Ireland have somebody who's been affected by alcohol use or by substance use. And, do you know, addictions are everywhere. And whether it's, it's, they're all related. It's all around us. Just please and challenge the language that people use. There's so much that we can do. Please, I hope, I really do hope this, that you do some or any or all of these things after listening to this. And thanks so much for listening. And most of all, thank you for sharing your story with us today. I'm sure I speak for everybody listening to say that it's been really impactful. And thanks to everybody listening at home. This has been an episode of Untold Stories, an Alfonso Film production on behalf of Citywide Drugs Crisis Campaign. Hosted and produced by me, Claire O'Connor, working with Anna Quigley of Citywide. Graphic design by Ben Clancy. Sound editing by Kieran O'Connor. We want to have these conversations out in the open where they should be had. We want to work towards ending shame, blame, stigma and criminalisation. And we really believe that these conversations are a part of that. So if you haven't, please go and listen to the other four episodes in this series. Share the podcast, talk to your friends, have these conversations and thanks for listening.